Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Science, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Galina Limorenko, doctoral candidate in neuroscience with a focus on biochemistry and molecular biology of neurodegenerative diseases at EPFL in Switzerland, the host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Adam Rogers, the author of Full Spectrum, How the Science of Color Made Us Modern a lively account of our age-old quest for brighter colors, which changed the way we see the world. From the best-selling author of Proof, The Science of Booze. From Kelly Green to Millennial Pink, our world is graced with a richness of colors. With our human-made colors haven't, oh, but our human-made colors haven't always matched nature's kaleidoscopic array. To reach those brightest heights, required millennia of remarkable innovation and a fascinating exchange of ideas between science and craft that's allowed for the most luminous manifestations of our built and adorned world. In full spectrum, Rogers Tech takes us on that globe-trotting journey, tracing an arc from the earliest humans to our digitized, synthesized present and future. We meet our ancestors mashing charcoal in caves. Silk Road merchants competing for the best ceramics, and textile artists cracking the centuries-old mystery of how colors mix, before shooting to the modern era for high-stakes corporate espionage and the digital revolution that's rewriting the rules of color forever. Well, Adam, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. I'm very happy to be here. Yeah, it's great to have you. So as we're going through the unprecedented times during the pandemic, I'd like to start the interview by asking, how has it affected you and your work? Yeah, I I think uh, I have been very lucky relative to so many people who've been affected in so many terrible ways by the pandemic. Of course, my my office uh, closed back in March and all of us scattered to our homes to work, but um, that's a little bit easier for a journalist. I think as you know, us, us folks in symbolic analyst jobs have it easier than the people who have to go to a place to clean it or do cooking or be on the front lines being a first responder. So that was relatively easy though. I, I, um, I will say that it was made a little bit harder by the fact that my partner has for, for decades now, worked exclusively from home, which meant that I invaded her home office, um, which she was not so happy about. And our kids um, were home from school, of course, as well. So it just meant that we all ended up on what came to feel, as for many of us, I think it did a, like a generation starship where we were just off on our own, occasionally participating in electronic communications with the people around us. Um, I actually also switched to almost full-time coverage of the pandemic as, as my job. I'm a, a science reporter, um, but I had a pretty wide ambit. And, and for, the, for most of 2020 and for this bit of 
2021, I was um, also covering the pandemic as a story. So it was very much um, on my mind as well. Did you have to learn a lot um, of extra stuff like epidemiology, for example? I had covered um, some pandemics before and have some on the job and a little bit of academic, but mostly on the job experience with biosciences, with epidemiology and with a little bit of virology and a little bit of immunology um, as a, as a journalist, not as a, not as a scientist. So mm. I wasn't completely unfamiliar with the concepts that were at work. Um, I think that the, uh, the kinds of the things that made this virus into a pandemic, the things that made the virus into a disease and then the disease into a pandemic became part of what my coverage has sort of focused on and trying to understand that trying to understand and trying to make readers understand that the, that the, that a virus doesn't actually want anything. You know, a virus is virus doesn't have desires or needs. It has evolutionary drives, I suppose. And, and, and it was the combination of what this virus did biologically with the way we've structured our societies that made it into a pandemic. And it's been interesting for me to learn more and to think more about, uh, I'm certainly not the first person to say that the pandemic exposed a lot of structural inequities um, in societies around the world, certainly in American society. Um, but, uh, but to look at specifically what some of those social and political infrastructures and also the, some of the, the biological ones, just the, the difference between, for example, how the measures that people in the United States took or failed to take as non-pharmaceutical interventions to try to stop the spread of the virus, like wearing masks and how they were depending on how you thought, think about it, either six, somewhat successful or not successful enough at all with dealing with SARS-CoV-2, with the, the virus that causes COVID-19, but they were completely successful around the world at dealing with influenza. And the United States basically didn't have a flu season. And so that raises a lot of really interesting questions about how we deal with disease on a public health and an individual level and, and what kind of risks we're willing to put up with. Because, of course, the risk of, of getting very sick or dying from influenza anywhere in the, in the tens of thousands every year in the United States. And, and basically nobody died of influenza this year in the United States. So the question is, well, should we have been putting up with that risk at all? Or is there something else we can do? It exposes those kinds of differences as well. That, that kind of thinking was um, new to me, but I think something that I have been chasing in some other work that this brought out to the fore. I'm talking about this a lot, forgive me, but it's been on my mind quite a bit. So. No, for sure. And you and your colleagues have been really paramount. So all the journalists, especially science journalists, to bring this information to public. So have you felt extra pressure to be quick in response, but also quite succinct in your communications? We certainly felt extra pressure. I don't know if it was for speed all the time. Um, I, I, I have ten, I've tended to say, and I, I've been a science reporter for a long time, and I it can, I can sound a little facile when I say this kind of thing, but you know, the basic, the, the one thing you're supposed to do as a journalist, broadly as a science journalist, certainly is, is get it correct is have the, the factual elements of the story be right. And that's always true as a goal of journalism, but it also assumes a, a, a literal life or death significance when you're covering a, a a lethal pandemic. Um, and that's harder and harder when the, those facts are not fully established when what the whole thing, whole job of science in that moment is to 
figure out what's really going on and get as get as right about it as possible. So we said things, I wrote things in stories that turned out not to be correct later. You know, so how do you deal with that? Well, you just, you, you got to keep going. You got to keep writing those stories. I think that for me, it was more important, more important than being fast was being right and giving people the right kind of information to make good decisions. Um, this was such a hard, this has been, this continues to be such a difficult issue um, because so many of the decisions people had to make were not, didn't only involve risks to themselves or risks to their families, to their loved ones, but they involve perhaps less of a risk to one's own self, but being a party to increasing risk for others. And that's very hard to get across. Um, and, and, and that was all that, that became very important to me. Um, so, you know, getting it right became paramount. And then, and then telling the right story, getting people to understand the, 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 the important parts and forget about the unimportant parts because it was very easy. I, I don't say this to um, be critical in the way that it'll sound like, but it was very easy over the course of much of 2020 to cover the pandemic as though it was the story of President Trump um, because he was the source of so much misinformation and because his administration handled and mishandled so much of it. Um, and I think at a core level, um, you you want science reporters to be covering to be on point covering the biggest science story of our lifetimes and when the white house was at the center of that story it was often a political story um and and that's a real i think that became its own sort of problem um that we we journalists struggled with you know week on week um i wrote a big feature on hydroxychloroquine on the idea that this anti-malarial um, this drug used to treat lupus could also have been, it was thought for a while by some folks, a, a treatment and a preventative for COVID-19. And, and that got ahead of the science because people in power, especially the president at the time, um, said that it was possibly a treatment. And so, you know, that got in the way, I think, of coming up with actual treatments, of figuring out how to build um, the right kind of trials to assess treatments. Um, it took a long time to unwind some of the mistakes that didn't have to get made in the first place. And, and that, um, that's a different kind of story. You want to be out there telling the epidemiology story, the virology story, the immunology story, the, the social inequities of disease story, the, um, the story of how you come up with therapeutics and with vaccines. Um, and instead you're out there telling a story of infighting in the inexperienced COVID-19 task force or something, um, which wasn't a story that I wrote, but it was a story that everyone was reading um, constantly. And that, I, I think that, uh, I mean, candidly, that cost lives. That killed people. Those mistakes and the emphasis on those mistakes killed people. So we can we have some reckoning to do with that, both in my profession and also as a society, I think. So do you see yourself uh, continuing in uh, in this uh, line of work in coverage of uh, pandemics, for example, or do you prefer to go back to what you were doing before? Well, I think the story continues and I would like to be part of telling it. Uh, I have mm -hmm. enough of an ego and enough of a desire to uh, and love for, for journalism. I know that sounds weird to say, but it is a true thing with me um, that you want to be part of 
when you, when, when one feels like that, one wants to be part, to continue to be part of the big story, the story of our time. Um, but I, I also, um, really valued the ability to be something of a dilettante, not in, um, what I was supposed to know about or be good at, but in, in being able to cover a lot of different things. So the, the book about color is an example of that. I really care a lot about, um, about the senses and about how they work. And I care a lot about, uh, um, sort of how people move through the world and what science has to say about that. Um, and I, uh, and I have covered now in the last few months, a few more stories out in, in other fields. I also write for our culture desk. Sometimes I write about sort of nerdy stuff like animation and science fiction movies. And because I think that those have a, I think, that kind of myth-making has some societal importance um, and because I just like it. So what I, I'm happy to go back to that. I think I've, I've had some conversations about this with some colleagues who many of us, you know, switched to covering only the pandemic COVID-19 for the full year and then sort of burnt out on it, you know, came to a place where he's like, I just can't write another one of these. And that's not even the the frontline folks who were, who were reporting on the real tragedies, the deaths and illness and the, and the, and the poverty that resulted and the social upheaval, but even just writing, you know, week after week stories of like, here's how this therapeutic doesn't work. And here's what it means when it turns out that it's a spike protein that attaches to the ACE2 uh, receptor, like that kind of stuff just, I think, wore on a lot of us. It was nice to, it's nice to be able to get to um, write about a beautiful animated show on Netflix once in a while also. Yeah, for sure. That's a, a bit of a uh, thing to get your mind off uh, the the current affairs, I suppose. <laughs> That's right. I think let's. I think I would say like this. Hopefully, it makes being able to cover. I always hoped that being able to cover a lot of different things, both within the sciences and then even outside the sciences, would make all of those things better. That I could cover, uh, you know, the Netflix cartoon City of Ghosts with the same kind of um, uh, with the same kind of mindset and both skepticism and sense of wonder and, um, and hope for, you know, robust evidence of claims that I would bring to science journalism. And similarly that I could, you know, cover, uh, the, the landing of a new Rover on Mars with the kind of wonder and science fiction fanishness, um, and skepticism that comes out of being a, a reader in that genre. Um, from the, from covering that other stuff. So I, I hope that there's some interaction there, but I, I'm not, as you can tell from the, the kind of incoherent way I'm making the case, I'm not totally positive it's true, but I, I have hopes that it's true. No, for sure. And uh, both for you, but actually for your readers as well. So they want to read about uh, pandemic, the very good coverage, but they also want to read uh, your other writings because you're really masterful in it. So can you tell us a bit more about yourself? So your background? Sure. Um, I, uh, I am the, uh, I'm the, I'm the child of school teachers, um, a long way back. And I think that mm. that's probably, uh, I think that probably has some, <laughs> some, some key that unlocks some of why I, um, became a journalist because I, uh, I, I was good at and liked writing and I come from a, a, a family that has, as an ideal, uh, educating and, and teaching. And so being able to combine those things, I think it sort of led me pretty naturally to journalism. Um, I, uh, I thought that I was going to be a professional scientist and that I would also write about science while I did it. And I found as an undergraduate 
uh, two things. One that I, I couldn't imagine only, I couldn't imagine focusing to the degree that it was required on one specific element of one specific field. Um, I just couldn't, mm. I couldn't get there. You know, I would talk to, to mentors, people who were real, um, guiding lights for me in the sciences. And, and they would say like, you know, I covered this one gene in this one worm. That's my thing. That's what I know the most about in the world. And I thought that's really cool, but I can't, you know, I want to be able to skip around more and know about more things and more diverse fields. I also came to realize that I just wasn't going to be that good at it. Um, I was sort of, I was a little bit ham handed in lab. I was, I, I, I just knew I wasn't going to be the best, you know, and mm. I felt like that was bad for science and also probably bad for me. And I thought there was a chance that I was going to be pretty good at writing. So I, um, I switched from being a biology major to being a science technology and society major as an undergraduate, which meant that in addition to doing um, about half of an undergraduate biology degree, really, when it comes down to it, the other stuff I was doing is all the same things that I'm still doing now professionally. I was doing history of science and sociology of science and philosophy and trying to think about not just what science could, could, could reveal about how the world worked because it's a, as a system of knowledge, but to understand how that system of knowledge actually functioned as well and what it could do and couldn't do and, um, and what that meant and how that changed over time. And I think um, it, was a, it was a long time until I realized that, in fact, I was still doing exactly that, that the, I've written two books now, and both of them are, are STS books. They're both science and society books. They're, they have a lot of science, and then they have how, how that science changed the society and how the societies that used it changed and thought about the science. Um, so I think that that functions as a kind of through line, the one that I f- kind of forgot to notice for a while. And then now mm-hmm. I've just started noticing I'm like, Oh, of course I'm still writing STS books. That's crazy. I had no idea. So um, after, I, after I finished as an undergraduate, I did a, a graduate program in journalism because I had no idea how to actually get into journalism. I knew I wanted to do it and I'd done it as a in college, and, but I didn't know anybody. I didn't have family in journalism. I didn't, I didn't know any reporters uh, or editors, so I and I, but I was pretty good at going to school, so I went to graduate school, and from graduate school, just kept leveling. I got an internship um, at uh, at a health newsletter at Harvard Med School, which newsletters are what websites used to be, um, and uh, and then from there I got a job at Newsweek in the '90s, and and Newsweek I think has had ups and downs since then, but 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 in the mid and, and late '90s it was one of the three national and one of the international news publications. And it was like going to college again. It was a, an incredible room of the best journalists, the best magazine writers and reporters in the world, all who really were willing to kind of sit with me and say like, no, don't do it like that. Do it like this. And I really value that. Um, in fact, the, uh, the woman who I first went to work with, I was essentially the fact checker for a science writer named Sharon Begley who even then was one of the top science writers in the country. Um, brilliant and able to write about anything from, you know, geology to physics, to space science, to dinosaurs, to whatever. Um, and she really trained me. She was one of the people who really helped teach me how to do this. And she just, uh, a couple months ago, she just died. And she, uh, she was writing for STAT at that point. So biosciences publication out of Boston, very good, doing incredible work as she did for her entire life. Um, the woman who just started, at STAT in her old position, essentially, as somebody who I, who used to be at Wired, 
who I worked alongside of, and I, and I hope she wouldn't mind me saying I helped train a little bit. And so there's a real, that continuity means a lot to me that the person who uh, trained me is now being succeeded by somebody who I helped in the same way and taught some of the same lessons. So journalism is not, uh, we're not great at keeping our own history sometimes, which is ironic for a field that's supposed to be writing the first rough draft of history. But I've been thinking a lot about those sorts of continuities and those connections, um, the people who trained me and the people who I have, have tried to, if not teach, at least say what I knew and say, there, here's the way we used to do it. Here's the way, a, you know, here's the way a 50 year old white guy was taught to do it. And now you can take that and make that better. So how important was the mentorship to you or was it more, more of like learn on the job or? Well, it was definitely learn on the job, but I've been mm-hmm. very fortunate and I've had a few people who, who were, who have been mentors, who have been friends and who, um, who were willing to, I, I, I don't know why <laughs> who were willing to, um, uh, take, look, look at me that when I was, you know, some raw, smart ass, not always entirely pleasant 23 year old or whatever, and <laughs> sit with me and say like, okay, here you, you've turned in this draft. Now sit next to me while I edit it in front of you and show you what you did wrong and how to do it better. Um, and they, there were a lot of them who, who did that. Um, and I, I remain grateful. And the fact that they did is why I try to do it too. I don't know that I'm as good at it as they were, uh, but they, but it, it's funny. I don't know that their names are meaningful to any, even, even within journalism anymore with outside it, but much less outside it. But, I, but people like Jeff Cowley and Sharon Begley and Peter Goldman and Barbara Kantrowitz and Pat Thomas. And these are all, these are all names of people who are great journalists who were also willing to, and m- many, many more. Um, willing to kind of teach me. And so when I, so when I get the opportunity to work with, as I do right now, uh, a, a newsroom full of really, really talented people. Um, and I'm really lucky to have that. It's a virtual newsroom. Of course, we only see each other on screens these days, but mm-hmm. um, when, when there are questions about how we might proceed on a story or with a, on a specific angle to be able to at least volunteer and say, well, here's one possibility. Here's one way to think about it because I've done this kind of thing before, not even necessarily being, confident that it's the absolute right way to do it because I'm not. Um, but just to be able to say that, to, to convey that, um, that experience at least to other folks is, is really important to me. Uh, it's part of me. I hope that it's part of the continuity of journalism as a practice, uh, and as a philosophy, as an approach in the same way that I think um, science is a philosophy and a practice and an approach, um, not objective, not getting it right every time, but a way to try to approach um, getting at the truth. You know, I, I, I say this a lot, but I, I think one of the things that attracted me to journalism specifically, it attracted me to science and it certainly attracted me and keeps me in science journalism is that there are very few jobs in the world that have as their, their primary product, getting it right, being true. It doesn't mean they, we always succeed by any means, but science and journalism are both supposed to, at least in the ideal sense, the thing that we make is supposed to be correct. It's supposed to be right. It's supposed to be true. It's it, the, the, that's the metric that we use to know if it's good. And in, in, in so much of so many other human pursuits, the metric is, does it make money? Do people want it? Is it aesthetically pleasing? None of those things are necessarily better or worse, but the thing about getting it right and, and making the sort of making the world smarter about itself was the thing that always appealed to me. 
I've gone on yes, a rant. I apologize. Mm-hmm. <laughs> no, no, no. Absolutely, I agree. Mm. And uh, especially your point about the truth. Uh, so, of course, on a different levels, uh, you know, the science produce scientists produce science which has to be uh, correct, has to has to be accurate and precise, and then you have to communicate it in a way which is accessible, but also also truthful, isn't it? So, do you consider yourself in part science communicator, whatever that term means to you? Yeah, that's such an interesting question because. Um, it's a, as as your question implies. It's a it's a, a controversial one um, mm. for me and I, other people. People I respect tremendously answer this question very differently. And I, and and this is something that is best discussed over a drink. You know, like this is the thing you're supposed to talk about <laughs> at a bar um, and to and really hash this. You can really only solve this with about maybe two drinks in. You can really start to solve this problem. But um, I think uh, I, so. No, I do not consider myself a science communicator, and I I will tell you why. I mean, my job obviously is to communicate about science. So you might think, well, it's pretty obvious. I'm a science communicator. I tend, when I hear science communicator, I hear in it, and not everyone does. I hear in that term, somebody who is um, on the side of the scientist, somebody who is, who is taking, who's translating some, you know, scientific results or, or outcomes in a way that, that people will understand them. And I, I do believe that that's part of my job, but I also... Um, I think the part of my job is to be critical of the practice of science sometimes, or to to point out the ways that that a scientist or scientists are getting something wrong, or who have not thought about something, or some way that it could be uh, dangerous and not great for the world, or ways that they, at the worst case, have been unethical, have carried out bad practices, have done bad science. And I think that you know we don't expect anybody on any other beat to be a communicator for that beat. We don't expect somebody who covers Wall Street to be a business communicator. We don't expect somebody who we don't expect somebody who covers, uh, um, you know, sports to be a baseball communicator. We we don't we, now. Sometimes they are. Sometimes they 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 end up in the tank for whatever they're doing. But I but we we don't want that in our journalists in any other field. And I would argue that there that while there, uh, science is not necessarily more complicated than business. It's not harder to understand than than how a trading floor works or how or the rules of American football, for that matter. I, I don't know. Maybe I'm just exposing my own nerdiness there. But but, but I, I do think that yes, that all of the, all of us on every beat are on the hook to be clear and elegant in our descriptions of the practices of the thing that we cover. But we're also there to to in some senses hold that field to account. To, um, and you know, why do we get to do that? Do we have? Are we allowed to have that power? Yeah. I mean, you know, in the United States, we are. That's guaranteed in the Constitution. We actually do. We're, we're, we're part of the system that makes those things function, ideally. And again, it, does it always work right? No. I mean, manifestly, no. But, uh, but no, it's not my job to communicate scientific results. That's like the most boring part of my job. My job is to explain why they're important and to know why they're important and be able to tell other people. Say, this is, a, this is the thing that's important about this that maybe you didn't anticipate. Um, that's, that's great. And that's not, I, I don't think that is science communication in the sense that we often mean it. But you, your mileage may vary. I mean, do you, do you agree with that, or is that my, do you think I'm do you think I'm way off? I think it's a very interesting distinction that you made about distilling down the complexities of the language, for example, of science, science where the concepts itself are not really that hard to grasp. So, given enough information, everybody can actually understand everything. But if it's given in the correct way, 
So maybe in the near future, we'll have a job, something like critical, unbiased science communicator. <laughs> uh, yeah, maybe, maybe. I, and I, I think I, I say that, but then I also, I know that, I know that I have biases and they're, they're kind of what makes my work any good if they, if they exist. I, I think that one of the things that I, 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 I went to college in the late, in the late, I went to college in the late eighties and early nineties in the heyday of postmodern philosophical thinking. And that had a lot of consequences in terms of relativism, moral, political, and otherwise, and a lot of other stuff that I think that those philosophers got wrong. But one thing I think they did get right, especially when they applied, when, when applied to the sciences, is the idea that the, the person doing the science matters, that the way the science we decide to do and the way we decide to do it have a, an impact on what the results are. Not what the numbers mm-hmm. say, but they have an impact on what we learn, what we decide to learn, and how we interpret it. And uh, and I think that's certainly true of journalism as well. There's no expectation. I have no expectation that a journalist will be objective, whatever that means, because an objective observation of any event has too much data. Yeah. Um, what what any journalist does, and what a scientist does too, I think, is um, choose which thing is most important. And and the process of making that choice is influenced by who we are, where we come from. Um, and what you're supposed to do is know that, be aware of it, understand that maybe you've made the wrong choice and try to figure out how to make the right choice by, in, in case of journalism, by talking to a lot of people, by asking questions, did I make the right choice? Do I, is my hypothesis correct? Right. That's the thing. And it's the thing that really, I think, unites journalists and, and scientists in a way is that we're one of the only, these are a couple of the only fields where the, where fundamentally we're supposed to ask ourselves all the time, maybe I got it wrong. Did I get it wrong? Did I get this wrong? How do I fix it? Did I get it wrong? Nobody else is supposed to, like, people hate doing that. People hate it when you do that at parties. You talk to somebody at a party and they make an assertion. And you say, I don't know, I think that's wrong. You have attacked them, right? Like, they, people hate that when you do that. Believe me, I, I know this to be the case because I get in trouble. Back when there were still parties, I used to get in trouble at parties all the time. Because among journalists and scientists, that's just a way to open the conversation. I don't, know, I, don't I think you have that wrong because of this and this. And you, then the next thing you say is, oh, interesting, or no, you totally don't understand. Like, that's how, that's how we engage, by trying to falsify, right? By trying to say like, well, how could I have got, how could I have missed this? What did I miss here? What do I not know? Um, and mm-hmm. I will say, I will say like, um, I just got a box full of copies of my new book and I was looking at it and I was saying just last night to my, my partners, you know, the thing that kills me about it is that I know there's something wrong in it. I don't know what, because we, because we fact checked it and I'm pretty good at this and we worked hard and, but it's 90,000 words there's something wrong, right? Somewhere in there, I made a mistake because human beings make mistakes. I don't know what it is. It makes me crazy. That's very interesting. Yes, because as you mentioned, if you bring these issues with somebody, they will get offended. But it's really hard to bring these issues with yourself and ask ask and question yourself whether something was wrong or not. So perhaps you're being a bit too critical of yourself. <laughs> I hope so. Maybe, there's, maybe, maybe it's perfect. Uh, yeah, it's maybe it's, it's probably fine. <laughs> No, but, but it's definitely colorful. <laughs> so <laughs> That's how exactly did you, right. How, how did you come to writing it? Why now? Um, uh, here's, a, here's a terrible answer to why now, because this is as fast as I could finish it. <laughs> I, I, mm-hmm. I've been thinking about this book for almost 25 years. And what I, oh. because what I got interested in, and I don't even remember why, which is not a great answer. I got interested in, in, a, in a molecule, in a pigment, called titanium dioxide. 
And titanium dioxide is, is just what it sounds like. It's a titanium atom with two oxygens attached to it. And if you treat it the right way as a chemical, it becomes it in the early in the early 20th century was discovered becomes a very very bright very very opaque white pigment um, a thing that gives other things color that's what a pigment is and because it has very high refractive index because of particle size and some other uh, uh, some other physical properties uh, it became the basis for a lot of other colors you mixed it into other paints and other surface coatings and you know, it shows up in plastics and in paper and in the coatings on pills and in the hard shells around some candies like M&Ms and in the powder on store-bought powdered donuts. And it be, it's this ubiquitous stuff in the human built mm. environment. And so I got really compelled by the idea that there was this one molecule that was everywhere. That if you look around whatever space you were sitting in right now, whatever space, where, whatever space you were in, where I am, Anybody listening to this, if they look around, they are looking, without knowing it, at titanium dioxide. And to try to understand why that was true required then figuring out how colors worked, what colors are as substance and as stuff and as, as, a, as physics and as chemistry and as technology and as something in human society that, that drives human societies. And you know, once I was down that rabbit hole, I was down it pretty far. So, uh, so that's, that's how, that's how the book came to be is I started out thinking I would tell this story specifically of titanium dioxide. And then, and what happens at, at a very, at a very tactical and kind of dumb level is you say, well, okay, I want to explain why titanium dioxide is this key white pigment. Say, All right. When was it invented? Early 20th century. Okay. What did they use before that? And that question opens up. It's like cracking into Tutankhamun's tomb. All of a sudden, you're in a whole new world of like, oh, right, what do they do before that? Well, there's thousands of years of human history based around lead white, the other main white pigment. Then, then you're talking about lead and lead poisoning. And then you're talking about cosmetics and you're talking about ceramics and you're talking about uh, the difference between pigments and the colors that people make and light and the colors that people see uh, because of the sun. And then you're talking about rainbows and trying to figure out Isaac Newton. And pretty soon, uh, pretty soon you're writing a book. That's what happened. Oh yeah, just like that. <laughs> yeah, no. All of a sudden, I found myself. <laughs> you get you get twenty thousand words in. You're like, well, I got a long way to go. So I guess we got a book here. I, I, you know, it also requires convincing your agent and your and your publisher that you have something, and they they were gracious enough to help out and figure like, yeah, maybe so. But let's. How about you want to you want to explain a little more about all this color stuff, right? Yes, I absolutely do. But it's definitely interesting when it uh, kind of pulls you in that rabbit hole, doesn't it? I think you really investigate. <laughs> yeah, and I think it, I feel like for me, it has to, I, I know people, very good writers who write, who can write books where that didn't happen to them. But for me, so I've written two, I've had a long career as a journalist and only written two books. I don't know, or I've written two books. That's a lot of books. That's way more books than most people write. So I'm, I feel pretty good about myself for that. But also I think both of them were, even in the, the, the moments when the writing or the reporting was difficult because that happens, you know, you get to a place you're like, Oh, this is tough. I don't know what to do next. But I, I loved the material in both. I loved the, the thing that I was covering both times it was really be, it became something of an obsession with both of these books to the point where I'm not sure I would have been able to, you know, finish a chapter. It becomes easier to quit if you're like, well, I don't really care about this. But it turns out I really care about this. That's why it's so gripping to read. You you actually get uh, absorbed into it uh, quite quite well. 
Thank you. So, That's okay, excellent. So let's dial back a little bit and uh, let's talk about science of yes. these colors. So that's a really interesting thing, because what is color? What did you discover? Right. Well, when we humans talk about colors, we're usually actually talking about a bunch of different things at once, and they're all related, so it makes sense that we would. But we're talking about, you know, photons or electromagnetic waves, talking about the light that comes from the sun. It's some some number of sextillions of photons per cubic per meter of sunlit surface of earth every second. Um, and depending on how you think about the physics, these are either wavelengths that vary in electrical and magnetic fields, or they are the smallest possible amount of electromagnetic energy, the, the, the quantum of electromagnetic energy, which we call a photon at different energy levels. And those are things that um, equate to colors, but you, in a sense, have to have some perceptual organ, some sensor perceiving those things or that thing, I suppose, depending on how you work the language, to make it into mm. a color. So there's this very thin band of wavelengths in what we now call the electromagnetic spectrum, though that's a fairly new concept. Um, it was Newton who named those colors the spectrum, Isaac Newton. Uh, there's a, fair, a narrow band that that are that the human eye, if you have what's called normal color vision, though color vision varies from on individual levels greatly, um, that we perceive as colors. And anything outside those wavelengths, so right above the the violet wavelengths or what we call ultraviolet, right, right below the um, the. No, I always get that wrong. The right above the red ones or infrared, right below the mm. violet or ultraviolet. Um, and we don't see those, but uh, that's a function of the way the photoreceptors in, our, in the back of our eye are constructed. Are these, these complicated proteins that sit on top of neurons that pick up photons or again, waves. Um, but other animals, other living things on earth, even, um, even things that aren't animals, even microbes have very similar photoreceptors and, but they're tuned to different wavelengths. So birds descended from dinosaurs see colors way differently than we do. Um, bees don't really see much of red at all, but they see way into the ultraviolet. Birds can see in the ultraviolet. Um, humans have three, if you have color normal vision, we have three photoreceptors, trichromatic vision, that's called. Um, but uh, there's a, an animal called the mantis shrimp that has 12 photoreceptors, has, sees mm. peak wavelengths and 12 different wavelengths. And most scientists think that doesn't mean that the mantis shrimp sees a lot more colors than we do. It, it sees kind of outside the bounds of our visible spectrum too but probably just that it sees faster because the way the mantis shrimp brain is organized, it doesn't really have much of a brain. It is after all a mantis shrimp. Um, those photoreceptors kind of tie right into some behavioral modes in the brain. Um, whereas uh, ours, our photoreceptors go through a one particularly important synapse and then they go to the visual cortex and there's a bunch of different color centers and the human brains organized in very confusing ways. This isn't totally well understood and people have been fighting about how color is seen in the brain for decades and they still fight about it. But, but so there's this, the, the, the part of color that is what our eyes and brains make, what, what we construct as a perception of the world. And then there are also the, there's the, what I suppose at, at base level, we call the chemistry of color or the technology of color, which are the colors that we make, that we, we work with chemicals. We make these new molecules that we put them and we put them in the right order and we grind the pigments to the right size because the size of the pigment is almost as important as what the material is. 
And then we mix that, those with binders and other stuff. So they stick together and they'll dry. And we put those onto surfaces or we make things out of the stuff itself. And those things are colored. Um, those things have color. And, uh, and we sometimes describe those as colors as well. So one of the places that the book starts, in fact, is in a, um, a cave uh, on the coast in South Africa where archaeologists and anthropologists discovered what they described as the oldest pigment workshop, the oldest paint workshop. No, it's tens of thousands of years old, and it's basically an abalone shell with a stone kind of carved to fit the inside of the curve of the abalone. And, you know, the inside of an abalone shell is that nacreous mm. stuff, that very smooth inner surface, like of the surface of a clamshell. And, um, and inside that shell, they found traces of both um, ochre, which is an iron oxide mineral, and, um, and trabecular bone, which is the kind of spongy bone like you might find in your spine. It's got a lot of bone and fat and stuff in it. And the hypothesis is that they mixed those together and made the kinds of colors of paints that they would put on the side of cave walls, like you'd see at Lascaux or other caves as well. So that's the place where it starts. That's the place where it begins, where human beings, because of the way the physics of light works and the way the physics of light interact with surfaces, take natural substances and then do technology on them, do a, do a technic on them to turn it into a colored stuff that we can then use because we, because we as people since the beginning of when we became human, value things that have colors for different reasons and in different ways. Interesting. Yeah. So, uh, so we have the two components of the color as it is: it's property properties of the material, and then the perception of it itself. Yeah. So, for example, and, and for I me, say, you, I'd, pro- I'd probably give it a third one too, which is and the way it exists within an, an illuminated space, because the way that the because the colors around it that bounce off it also affect that, and, and can have really weird mm-hmm. um, illusory effects too. So there, it's almost a three. It's a it's a it's a nice evocation of the trichromatic of a trichromatic vision space of a trichromatic color space that humans might have. Is that there's this sort of three there's this tripartite division of like the light and physics out in the world. The, the chemistry and technology of a surface, and then what our eyes and brains, what our neurology, what our neurophysi- what our neurophysiology makes of that inside our minds. Yes, and as, as you started with the prehistoric times, uh, uh, that uh, humans uh, wanted to really harness the color, if you can maybe can put it this way. So, how did our uh, relationship with color, uh, color evolve later on? So, for example, in the mid mid centuries. What technologies emerged? Yeah, interesting. Um, how did so? How did we how did we evolve? So in the you know after we you, you get to a place where people are starting to make more and more things, and mm. um, and so we see. I say we like I've done this research. So for example, um, if you follow the um, the ongoing excavation of Pompeii. One of the things that people are always fascinated by in Pompeii, so this, is, this is ancient Rome, is the sorts of the, the beautiful colored mosaics and surfaces that get exposed um, when you remove the, the ash and the tufa and other stuff that got left over from that, that volcanic eruption because they're so vivid and so beautiful. And what they find are different, different pigments used in the chemistry and the applications of frescoes on the walls and also different colors used in the tiles. And what that tells them about is not just how important color was to those to the Romans, um, but also it tells about their trade routes because those colors, those colored things, that colored stuff, are things that you have to get from different parts of the world because it doesn't exist everywhere. Indigo, which makes a blue, only comes from a particular place. The purple that come, that famous royal Roman purple that comes from the mollusks in the Mediterranean. Red Sea, whatever, um, the, the, you have to get those mollusks and crush them and get the mucosal 
stuff that comes out of their guts or whatever. Like all these things are trade goods. And so I especially got interested in the book, for example, in, in, in the, um, the ceramics that were traded along the, what we would call the Silk Road, although th- this is the ceramics because they were heavier, mostly on the maritime routes of the Silk Road trade between uh, Tang era China and the Abbasid Empire, the, the, early, um, the early Arab um, uh, empires. And because th- that's, that's this part of the world where, um, like as a, as a kid getting educated in public schools in the United States in the 1970s and 1980s, like all the stuff that they were teaching us about, that was mostly just mud at that point. But there was this incredible civilization. If you just rotate the globe kind of halfway, there's this incredible civilization that's trading across thousands and thousands of miles. And the thing that they're trading in is color. Um, I mean, that's obviously a gross oversimplification, but they're trading in textiles, um, not just because of their material properties, but because of how they look. And ceramics, again, not just because of their material properties, but because of how they look. And in the case of ceramics, often those two things are inextricably intertwined. So um, there was in the Tang era, there were these, um, uh, there were potteries in the, uh, in an area called Sing um, that made this incredible, beautiful, almost translucent um, white uh, porcelain. And porcelain was a brand new, was brand new stuff, was like a killer product in the 700s, 800s, 900s, because it was light and really strong and made a beautiful sound when you rang it. And also people wanted to drink tea. That was like the hot new trend at the time. And if you, in, just like with every food trend now, you also, you have to do it the right way, you know, but they, I'm putting that in quotation marks, but that included drinking out of the right bowl. So there were this beautiful whiteware from Northern China, this beautiful green celadon colored stuff from Southern China. And, um, and those were, those had those colors because of whatever minerals were available for, for these folks to dig up. Um, this wasn't titanium yet. It was primarily kaolin, which is still the basis for the finest quality porcelain even today. Um, and you, uh, and then you have to build the right kind of kilns to f- cook it at the right temperature. It has to be cooked very high, depending on what materials you have, what temperatures you can cook it at. These are all engineering challenges, right? It's a mining challenge. Mm. It's a, it's a, um, engineering challenge of how you construct a kiln to where you get the fuel to do it. If you can figure all that stuff out, you get different kinds of colors. And in fact, the competition for the, for colors and what kinds of colors the, both the Arabs at the time and the Chinese would make became part of the basis for this global trade structure to the point that sort of near the end of the era that I'm talking about, um, the, one of the main scientific questions that the people who study ceramics would like to answer is whether the, the blue glaze on what's called blue and white from ceramics, because it's sort of a white field with blue designs. Who invented that blue? Was that Han blue? Was that Chinese blue? Or was it a blue that the Arabs had, which are chemically slightly different? And the question is, did the Arab makers of ceramics get the Chinese product, look at it, and then try to replicate the blue? And it looks like they probably did. But you can see that that becomes, the, it becomes a cultural and economic driver. How do we get that blue? We really like that blue. How do we get it? How do we get the white that it sits on? Because our pottery tends to look more yellow because we don't have as much kale. Um, the, so the, the color gets, again, wrapped up in a way that you really can't untie. The technology and the science of the color get wrapped into the social drives. Yeah, that's interesting. Actually, what you mentioned, uh, I also uh, just, just thought that uh, there's a bit of dimensionality to the color as well. So it's not just, for example, a green is green. That, that we look at it, that it's really startling, but it might have some sort of kind of big bluish shade to it. 
And um, uh, as you mentioned, the colors, natural coral colors, were derived from some of the animals like beetles or um, uh, shells, um, I think. Uh, so when did humans start to derive chemically derived colors, so synthesize them or maybe mix something to, to produce new colors? Yeah, that's a... I love that question because there's always this, there's this, um, one of the things that people who write about colors will always look for is the first synthetic pigment. The mm. first, what was the first synthetic color? And usually what people will say is they'll, they'll say that it was uh, Movine, um, th- discovered by William Perkin, who was actually chasing after a replacement for, um, for, uh, for, um, he, he was looking for a malaria drug. <laughs> um, uh, and, uh, and he didn't didn't find that, but he did find um, a, a pinkish, a sort of a pinkish pigment um, that he could make chemically. But in fact, like pigments, like uh, many cultures, many um, ancient cultures, the Maya, the Egyptians, the Han, all had a blue, for example, that they made that was like a bunch of different. That's a a lot of them are barium based, but you have to find the right rocks and crush them up the right way and cook them the right way together. And the, and the blues still persist. Egyptian blue, you'll still see on the, on the inside of tombs of, of, of ancient Egyptian tombs and, and Maya blue, you can still see on the artifacts from that civilization as well. Um, so I kind of like Maya, like Maya blue or Egyptian blue, uh, white lead, which was the foundational, um, white and also the basis for other colors. Cause you mix it, mix it in with other colors to give it opacity that's at least goes back to the Romans and white lead. You have to do a lot of chemistry to work on. You actually take lead, you take what are called buckles. So strips of lead, thin strips of lead, and you put those in, in barrels or containers um, sitting atop a pool of vinegar. And then you put those containers surround them with like wood shavings or other kind of fuel stuff that'll decompose and with old manure and you let the manure decompose because when it decomposes, it gives off heat the heat volatilizes the vinegar inside the barrels. And then the lead goes through this process of there's a, it it becomes an oxalate for a while, but anyway, eventually you get to a lead carbonate. Um, And that lead carbonate is this white powder that you can then sort of break off the, whatever's left of the lead that's not converted, chemically converted. And you can mix that with linseed oil and you get a beautiful white paint and lead white was used in um, cosmetics as early as the uh, um, that Tang era, Tang era and before China that I was mentioning, when you look at pictures of um, like Queen Queen Elizabeth, the old f- first Queen Elizabeth, when she's got that that cake white face, you know, when she's wearing that the makeup like that, mm. that was lead. That was like caked on lead. And in fact, through the through, through the Middle Ages and into the Renaissance, they had to warn uh, they would warn upper class women in England that if they went to the spa at Bath. They shouldn't wear their lead white based makeup into the spa because lead in the presence of sulfur, which is what's in hot springs, turns black. So they would oh, go I'd in. Say they should wear it full stop. <laughs> exactly right. Well, also that. And what nobody knew, this isn't exactly true because as far back as Pliny, people mm-hmm. knew that lead was toxic. But what people hadn't fully acknowledged was if you keep coating your face with lead, you're going to get sick and die because, of course, lead has all these neurotoxic problems as well. Mm-hmm. And so you get to a place in the, in the late 19, in the, the late 1800s mid 1800s, late 1800s, where, where the, where, where making lead white, because the dry, the demand for lead white is so great in, to be used as a glaze and to be used as paint and to be used in all kinds of ways. The demand gets so high because people love love color so much that the people making it are all getting sick and dying of lead poisoning. 
So the, mm. so the color white, the, the lead white becomes essentially the inspiration for the creation of occupational safety and health as a pursuit, as a scientific pursuit. And they start saying, geez, you know, maybe don't walk around in, the, in clouds of that stuff. And in fact, there's, <laughs> this isn't exactly about the letter, Benjamin Franklin in some of his letters, um, he talks about knowing um, about lead toxicity. And he's got two examples because he knows that uh, co- the American colonies are painting their roofs with lead white and that the water is coming off of that. And then they're collecting the water in rain barrels and drinking it and people are getting sick. And he says, you know, I know this is a problem because when I was a kid, this is Franklin writing in this letter. Franklin says, when I was a kid, I worked in this print shop in England and they used to tell us not he was using metal type, you know, the, the way they used to print things, which had little pieces of, you know, letters engraved on pieces of metal that you would then put in order to make the print. That was called the type. And the, it was made out of lead because it's soft metal to work with. He, and he recalled being told by people in that print shop not to ever warm up in the morning, not to bring his, his type over to the, in front of the fire to warm it up before using it because it would be so cold to use because that would make it even more toxic and you would get all of these neurological symptoms. Your hand essentially would stop working, uh, which is the first mm-hmm. symptom of lead poisoning. So people knew about it, but they were still using it because there wasn't an alternative really until, the, until 1908, basically. That was a long rant. Sorry, I got a lot of color stuff in my head. <laughs> no, no, for sure. That's so interesting. So um, as we go uh, sort of through the the ages, so obviously people were very limited to what colors they were able to produce um, physically. So how did it change later on in the uh, maybe mid-19th, uh, 20th, mid 20th century when we started doing more chemistry? and? Yeah, you, when, when you get to the... the um... The 1800s, basically, um, the, uh, chemists and others begin to be able to synthesize both organic and inorganic uh, pigments. And there's, a, there's an explosion of pigments available. So in the, I guess in the early part of the 20th century, the number, like the sheer number of pigments doubles and then doubles again. So the, that, that adds to the to not the number of colors that there are in the world, right? Because that's a continuum, but to the, to the ability to make those colors and present them. One thing that, that the color scientists and theorists and philosophers are trying to figure out for most of human history is what it means to mix pigments and mix colors. Because without the understanding of how the electromagnetic spectrum works, they don't understand how one color relates to the other. They don't understand how one color of light relates to another color of light. And they certainly don't understand how one color of pigment relates to another, especially because when you, as soon as, as soon as Newton figures out, or at least figures out the experiment that will describe how you can take sunlight, which is roughly white and break it into a bunch of colors, Mm -hmm. codifying the understanding that what we actually, what we see as sunlight is actually made of a bunch of other colors that are all mixed together and you can break them apart. But even he's not sure how those colors get from one to the other. And, and there's some arguments that he and, and Hook and others have about whether there's particles of light or waves of light, prefiguring arguments about quantum physics that would come centuries later. But they also don't understand, well, something different happens when you mix pigments because pigments are subtractive, not additive. When you mix two different colors of light, you can get another color and it's indistinguishable from that wavelength. When you mix pigments, they get darker. And I, I guess I, I give this example because it's one that's familiar. But I don't, if, if you remember when you were a kid in school and you would get told by a teacher that if you mixed red and blue, you would get purple, right? Mm-hmm. But then when you mixed red and blue, what really happened? You get brown. 
candidly, yeah. right? And if you mix uh, yellow and blue, you're supposed to get green, right? But then I would mix yellow and blue and I would get like brown, basically. And you keep trying and you keep getting more brown. Pretty soon you just have a lot of shades of brown. Um, <laughs> because what's happening with the pigment is that pigments are, are reflecting some wavelengths of light and absorbing others. And when you mix them together, they're absorbing more and more together. Um, so that absorption begins to, in a sense, swamp the reflection. That doesn't happen with light. And nobody really knew why that was going on, but it did mean that if you were an artist or if you were a designer or if you were decorating something, you really liked the idea of being able to combine colors or have more colors to use that you didn't have to mix to get there. Um, interestingly, at least I think this is interesting, weavers had this problem in a whole other way because they were working with thread or yarn that came in a specific color. But then when they, they could mix those colors, they would mix optically, right? You cross one color over the other. And essentially where the colors are, are exposed and not exposed become what we would think of as pixels on a screen. They become little dots. Um, so the, the weavers came to a similar realization as the neo-impressionists like George Surratt would come to eventually, which is that the eye will also do some, some color mixing. Um, the, the, the color printers had realized this too. If you put dots of color next to each other, the eye will make those, will mix those colors for you. And you don't, the idea was that you wouldn't lose the same brightness in the way that you do if you mix pigments. And sometimes it works. I mean, you get a certain luminosity. It certainly works in weaving because um, that's the, that's the trickery that the weavers use. Um, so, so anyway, what begins to happen is that the, um, the, the miracle of modern chemistry begins to provide more and more pigments that begin to get used in more and more different ways. So by the, by the 1920s, um, more and more entertainment is using light as a way to convey feeling. Um, that sort of starts on, on Broadway and with dance, mixing light with music, um, because there are more colored, more kinds of colored light to use. And, uh, and, and with more and more pigments available, uh, the, the people who are designing and marketing all of the new goods of the 20th century, of the industrial revolution, the late industrial revolution, um, need to kind of find a way to distinguish every year's new product from the previous years because the technology doesn't change as fast as the, as the calendar does. So what happens is what, what the Saturday evening post calls and then what a, a, a historian of color noted and calls a chromatic revolution where all of a sudden everything has all of these amazing bright new colors. And some of this is driven by titanium dioxide that I mentioned earlier, because that did actually make a lot of paints and pigments brighter. And there's a story that's probably apocryphal, I don't know if this is true, but I like the story so much. I like telling it that when the, when the Berlin wall was still up or when you, if you think about Soviet bloc countries, one of the reasons that they were always seen or depicted as having kind of um, less saturated grayer and bluer colors, not as bright colors is that they didn't have the same access to titanium dioxide in their paints. So that one of the things that divided the, um, the Berlin, Berlin, when the Berlin Wall was up, was that one side was sort of more color, literally more colorful than the other. I don't know if that's mm -hmm. actually true or not, because it, it's probably filtered through some Western propaganda. But, but I like the idea that it was that one, that one chemical that made things just literally made the built environment physically look different. It might as well be true, at least uh, part of it. That uh, we, for any epoch, that's what we see in uh, in the clothes, for example. It's the accessibility of what kind of color color was cheap enough to produce for sure. That's right. Uh, clothes for uh, many people. 
And I think also that what you do see there too is the is the some of the many different ways that when we talk about color, what we really mean is that we don't just mean the hue, we don't just mean the wavelength, as it were, the, whether it's red or blue, but we also mean how bright it is and kind of how saturated it is and how pastel it is. And there are just so, there are multiple axes on which you can measure what kind of color you're looking at, and they also vary because human perception of colors varies. We tend to see, for example, given everything all other things being equal, we'll see yellow as being brighter than other colors, for example. So you, if, you try to, if you try to build a diagram of all the colors out there or all the colors a human being can see, they tend to have to be at least a three-dimensional space um, to account for all these different axes. Color spaces are a particular fascination of mine, and, and uh, they all look sort of different. But you have to do more than just you know, a, a color circle, a spectrum like Newton would have drawn. You have to also include light and dark and pastel or, or, or vivid. So for, the, for for this, of course, we're talking about the physical objects that reflect light or perhaps maybe some of them even emit light. I suppose uh, mm -hmm. you can also see some different uh, uh, colors. So once we venture into the technology age, how has our relationship changed with the color that we get, for example, from LED lights? Yeah, it has changed greatly, um, especially I think that people have more, certainly people have more control over the light in their space. Um, the idea that you would be concerned about the color temperature of your white LED is sort of a fascinating one to me, whether you want to be in a sort of more bluish or more yellowish environment, how that makes you feel about mm. things. But but also uh, our interactions, the, the surfaces that we interact with every day have become more active. Just about all of us now have in our pockets this slab of black glass that emits colored light at us. Um, and, and that never used to be true. You know, that's, that's a thing that didn't, that wasn't true 10 years ago. Um, mm. And, and I think that that, well, one of the reasons I think, for example, that the, if you, if you remember the thing from a few years back about the blue dress, the dress that was on the internet that for a while there, the people would argue about whether they, well, was a blue dress or a white dress. And people mm. saw it as being one or the other typically when they saw this image um, because of some interesting effects that color has in the brain, I think. But one of the reasons I think that was so potent is that people saw it on screens. Nobody saw that image until much later as a, as a printed uh, a reflective surface. We all saw that as emissive. And I think that had a, an effect. This is, I, I'm really speculating here because I, I think the reason people saw it as one color or the other has more to do with how our brains interpret color constancy and how we figure out how we try to infer what color the illumination light is on a, on a surface. But, but something was happening there with the fact that that image, the way we all saw it presented to us was as an emissive additive beams of light coming off of the screen into our, into our eyes. And I think that, yeah, yes, absolutely. Mm. And I, and I think, you know, you start to see it more as, for example, the technology of movie making has changed where movies used to almost entirely be functions of light being shined through semi-transparent plastic film and then that light would get beamed onto a reflective surface and then we would see the light reflecting off that surface. Now, almost every movie that when people go back to movies, we'll see is actually digitally projected. The light is coming from within the camera projected onto that screen. And that's mostly how we see movies as well now, um, if you watch them at home on your TV. And that has allowed places, especially places doing animation, or special effects, I suppose, like Pixar or places like that, to, to really think hard about 
the the, the outside of the capabilities of those digital projectors and, and what they can induce, what sorts of colors and what sorts of emotional effects those colors can induce in the people watching. Um, there's some science that says that uh, if you have the right range of what's called dynamic range, the range of from black to black to white, from darkest dark, no light being emitted to super bright white light being emitted, uh, that a, a, a broad that a broader slope, that a longer grayscale um, lets you enhance kind of the emotional, the, the sense that something is real. Um, if it's bright enough, we'll start to feel like real life. And so there are people doing research, um, at, at Doldy labs, um, here in the California Bay area where I am, um, trying to, uh, assess physiological responses to different dynamic ranges and different images to see if they can tune that in such a way that people will feel more present, uh, will feel like they're more in a place when they see an image on a screen because it's emitted as light, not just a, you know, a reflected image in a comic book. Interesting. Yes. As, as you mentioned, the filmmakers have really taken advantage of all of it, these technologies to master the light, but there also have been a few movies which were in black and white recent movies. So do you think we can get a bit of a color fatigue? Hmm. That's really interesting. Um, Black and white, of course, black and white movies, movies were black and white because the technology to make them color didn't exist initially. And people tried even at the very beginning. So some of the early, some of the, the very earliest films, people like innovators in special effects like Georges Méliès would, would hand paint their black and white images, their grayscale, what we call grayscale today, images to give them color. People had a drive for it even then. But the, 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 the dynamic that you're talking about, the kind of competition between form and color is one that shows up in writing and arguing about, about color and arts, certainly back to the Greeks and the Romans and, and well into the Renaissance. Michelangelo and da Vinci had their feelings about it as well. So in, the, in Rome, um, almost every statue and much of the architecture was very highly colored. They would use a lot of pigments on the surfaces. Uh, they, they were polychrom- polychromatic. The statues would, if you if you didn't, if you had a statue that didn't have the colors of life, that didn't have you know a colored skin and colored hair and colored clothes, that was because you were too poor. Um, obviously, every statue should have that because you wanted it to look like real life. Even though mm. our our neoclassical representations of it tend to have them be all white, so the you know a big marble bank or a the or, you know the U.S. Capitol or something is white because that was the way that people found those artifacts later and 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 through some real some both literal and figurative whitewashing of history um decided to ignore the fact that they'd been colored objects um but it but in the people argued about this whether whether the truth in those objects the truth in what we saw was in the form in the line or what was in the color to the point that even some some art critics later in the 18th century would say that that uh form was masculine and color was feminine and therefore color was inferior because those people were jerks. Um, but that was part of the, the dialogue here. That was the discourse. Um, and I think probably to the point that, you know, even today, I think black and white in film is still seen as having some kind of more serious cachet. You can get more dramatic effects. People see it as like film noir, like the, the emotions somehow become more, um, convincing in some way if they're in black and white or more serious, which I, 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 I find that strange personally. Um, but I also think that probably nobody would, would argue that form, form and color become in a sense like truth and beauty. They're inextricable. 
and they are both the same thing. Um, the colors of those services are no more or less real than the shapes of those services, because of course our perception of the shapes of those services is mediated by the exact same neurons and the same synaptic networks. The shapes are no more or less real than the colors. I, I would I would also say just as a side thing that as soon as you start to really internalize the idea that colors are all illusion because they're constructed in the brain and you know shape is all kind of illusion because that's really constructed in the brain too by some of the same neural networks um you can really freak yourself out <laughs> you really start to be like oh man nothing's real i'm having a i'm having like an existential crisis so uh, don't do that i'm just as a side thing i would encourage you know there are there's real stuff out there in the world um that we're perceiving we're just we just perceive it imperfectly that's it's not that there's no real stuff don't panic yeah, for sure. But uh, it also, I suppose, it takes away the dimension, isn't it, when you uh, flip to the black and white um, movie making? Because even thinking about writing, when you read a book, it's usually black on white. So it's, uh, it's not destructive. If, if, if it was uh, not distracting, but if it was in some color, for example, in blue, and you would come across the name of color with just written red, you would try and read it red, but you would still read it blue. Yeah, it throws your brain because... off. It really does. Mm-hmm. I'm remembering um, the book, uh, Michael N's book, The Neverending Story, which in hardcover um, it was it takes place in two different worlds that then overlap. And in the hardcover edition, each world, one was in red and one was in green. Uh, and it really was, and the effect was amazing because when you read, when, if you read enough pages of the green text or of the red text, you would just lose it you just didn't see it as a color anymore because it was you're reading it. So it translates into images in your head. But then when they started mm. to mix and you would see both colors on the page at once, or they would change the amount of one to the other, it really was striking that it worked. And then in paperback, they did the same thing, but with um, romanized or italic. And it was not as convincing an effect uh, as the color. I think that, um, I think that when we read our verbal systems are more engaged than the color system. But that would be a really interesting thing to ask about. I wonder how you could test that. Anyway, that's a really good, you got a good PhD in there if you want to go chase another one. Yeah, but something similar was done, isn't it? It's one of those uh, tests where you have the uh, array of uh, words uh, describing colors written. So green, black, purple, and they are colored in a different color that one is what is written. So it's really hard then when you asked to name the color of the writing, it's really hard to flip. So if uh, something is written red, but it's written in blue, it's hard to say blue because you're reading red. Right. The, the, um, the dissonance, the, the verbal, mm-hmm. the dissonance gets overcome by the, by the verbal input. Um, I think that one of the, one of the reasons that um, researchers in cognition and in linguistics and in neurophysiology really like color as a tool, as a methodological tool, because it um, it actually sidesteps all of those linguistic pathways um, or engages them, depending on how you're thinking about this. Because when people see blue, see, see a, a, a slide that's just the color blue, they're both identifying that as that color, the thing that they perceive as that color, you know, that hue, whatever. And that color has a name in whatever language they speak. And it's different mm-hmm. in different languages, but it's still that color. So it becomes a, a probe, a really effective probe to try to understand how different languages affect perception, speed of perception. So I'll, I'll give you one example of this. And this, I, I love this one. 
Um, these, the, the, uh, these are called basic color terms. So every language has them. Some languages have more than others, but they're the words that don't mean anything other than the color. They're not the metaphor words. So not turquoise, right? Because that's also a material. It's a, a mineral called turquoise and that the, the color of it is turquoise. That's, but, but that's a thing, right? But I'm talking about words like blue or red or yellow words that only mean colors and different languages mm-hmm. have different, have those different words, but we, but we, we take as a, as received wisdom that most human beings see all those colors. At least we want to ask whether that's true. But for example, um, in English, there's one color term, one basic color term for blue. Russian has two basic color terms for blue, a light, what we would call in English, a light blue and a dark blue. Um, Sini and Goldeboy. I'm probably pronouncing those wrong. Forgive me. No, that's if, fine. Sini Goldeboy. <laughs> thank you. Good. All right. I nailed it. Um, <laughs> if you show Russian speakers and English speakers um, two tiles of color, of one, one or the other, light blue or dark blue, and then you show them a third tile and say, does it match or does it not match? Right? Is it one or the other? Is it the one that I've shown you or is it the one I'm not showing you? Russian speakers do that faster than English speakers. Mm. The idea being that having access to a different color term also gives you different color perception. And that, and that question, uh, uh, science, there have been, there's been science that's hinged on that for hundreds of years, and it still it remains um, something that color researchers fight about. But it's a, a key question. And it gets back to that kind of college dorm room thing, like, well, is my blue the same as your blue? You and I can both agree that something is blue, but are we seeing it the same way? And if we speak different languages, if you call it, if I would call it dark blue and you would call it gold boy, is it still the same color? Does that mean mm-hmm. the same thing? Which becomes a, a question, not just of linguistics and of cognition, but also of philosophy, which is fantastic. Hmm. So what, what is your favorite color, whichever color that is, and uh, whether you can compare it to someone else's? <laughs> I, I'm about to give you the worst, most boring, horrible answer to that question as somebody who's written a book about color. I love gray. <laughs> I love the center of the <laughs> color space. I've always liked the color gray. And I think uh, probably I like it. Um, I like it because of the way it looks, but I also like it because of some of the, um, the, the, the cultural signaling of it, the existing between light and dark. Um, I think things are shaded gray. Maybe that's being a journalist too, but that's my favorite color. Isn't that lame? No, not at all. I think it's interesting. <laughs> Great, something that actually brings out other colors when you put it next to. See, I like that. I'm just here. I'm trying to help. That's right. Picking up the <laughs> contrasts. All right. So um, in your perfect world, in the future, how do you see our relationship with color? Huh. I, I have been really struck over the past few years of working on this book of trying to understand of the, of the, the knowledge that color is a, a thing that doesn't just exist without us, that it's a thing that, it, that it only exists because we are here to talk about it and think about it. Um, that other, that other living things would see it differently, that, that on a different world, on an alien planet, if it were possible for us to stand on that planet, that things would have different colors because of the different spectrum of light coming off of the sun that was illuminating them. And because of the way, whatever their pigments, their natural pigments, their equivalents of chlorophyll had evolved. So you could imagine a planet where instead of, instead of a planet being green 
as our planet is to the human eye, a planet that was a, refle- a, a, a reflective black or dark purple because the, mm. the plant pigments were absorbing all of the wavelength instead of having that dip in chlorophyll that reflects green or the other pigments that will reflect reds or browns. Um, and that a creature that evolved on that planet would see the colors of that planet differently than we see them because their eyes and brains would have evolved in that color environment. That this is something that only exists between, it exists because of where we live and because of who we are. And I think that, I find that really moving. I find that, I find that to be um, centering, to make us as humans, a, a, a species that belongs here, that lives here, that this is our place, that colors look the way they do because we are, earthlings like all these other earthlings and these other earthly colors and because we're around the sun that we're around because we have the minerals that we have on the planet that 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 we're we're a part of this larger system it makes you think that if if we can colonize other planets will we be able to actually see them as they are isn't it and whether we can ever whether we ever see anything as it actually is or whether we're only seeing things because we're we're, in, we're, we're so far in it that we can't see it any other way. I had this conversation with a, a woman who was doing research on that dress, in fact, um, and had, had taken it to another step where she was illuminating the dress and objects of art and other things with different LED lights so that you could control, you could make the light appear to be white light, but in fact it wasn't. It was composed of other colors that, that the eye wouldn't perceive, but the brain might. And she could make people see colors that essentially weren't there. And, mm. and I said, but, but, but it really, but it, but those things, they have a color. I mean, the, the thing has a color. You're making people see red as green or blue as yellow and that, but, but it has a color. And she basically said like, well, I mean, you can say it that way if you want, but oh, no, they don't <laughs> like, there's no, things don't have colors. We just see, you see colors because of the environment, because of where you are and because of who you are. Um, and that's, uh, that's pretty deep. You know, that those colors are the colors that we see around us are us are really us. Interesting, yeah. Uh, consciously, I would agree, but uh, maybe unconsciously a little bit, because uh, I've got a few synesthetic experiences usually, and I don't see color uh, Interesting. with my eyes, but I actually perceive it, so I understand that there's a color that I can put a name on it. So, so I don't know your... whether that makes sense. No, it does. But so in your synesthetic experiences, do does the same the same color have the same synesthetic outcome every time? Is it consistent? Uh, usually yes, so I, wow. I I can pinpoint it, but obviously I'm not perceiving it with my eyes, so I can have my eyes shut. That's so, fascinating. Yeah, it goes back uh, to what you were talking about before about the actual perception it and how it goes in our brain. So yeah, really interesting. <laughs> That's cool. Well, we've taken up a lot of your time, so can you t- tell us what are you currently working on? Yes, I can. I am currently um, working on trying to understand what it means that the uh, American health regulate, regulatory bodies are, have put a pause on using a particular vaccine against, uh, against COVID-19 because it may have some blood clotting side effects. So I'm back mm-hmm. to that world. Um, and I was looking a little bit at a new brain-computer interface technology earlier, and maybe after that I might be going to... Uh, I'm really interested in non-alcoholic but alcoholic tasting drinks. There's some interesting chemistry there too. And I think I might go look at that next as well. All right. So following up after your first book, The Booze. That's right. Exactly. Maybe not booze next time. Yes. 
future booze. <laughs> Excellent. So uh, where can our listeners find more information about the book and also your work? Uh, you can find me almost all the time at uh, wired.com. Um, where I, there's a page you can look up Adam Rogers on wired.com and you can find my work there. It's mostly in the science section. You can usually find me on Twitter if social media is your thing. Uh, my handle there is at jetjocko, J-E-T-J-O-C-K-O. Uh, Amazon has an author page, which has a couple, has the two of my books together for me. And um, my DMs are open. <laughs> if you want to check in, I'm happy to say hi. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. It was really fascinating discussion. Thank you for the for all of the questions. It's really it's thought provoking stuff, and I'm glad that you I'm glad you found it um, some matters of interest in it. I appreciate it.